The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. My name is Saffron Benner and I'm a Sustainability Manager at Griffith University and sometimes a dramaturg working with artists in the creative sector to develop new performance work. I'll be your host for this episode of The Worker Learner and I'm talking to David Pledger. Welcome, David. Thanks, Saffron. Just before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded lands I'm speaking from today, the Yuggerable, Yuggera, Jagera and Turbal peoples. So David, you are the artistic director of one of Australia's most significant interdisciplinary independent arts companies in Australia. Not yet, it's difficult. You're also a writer, a commentator, a futurist, an academic, and the current former, not sure, Minister for Empathy. This is, I think we all need a Minister for Empathy. So this is a very exciting uh, polymath resume. How do you, uh, for someone who's never seen maybe theatre or certainly not contemporary performance practice, how do you explain your work to someone who's never seen it before? What could people expect when they walk into a not yet it's difficult work? Okay, so I'm I'll, I'm uh, speaking to you from the uh, land of the um, uh, the uh, Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. I often work on. Uh, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as well here in Nam. Um, thanks, Saffron, for inviting me. Very happy to uh, have a chat to you today. I am, I'm not stalling actually, but I am sort of thinking my way through um, what people might expect because I, because partly because the art forms that I work within are um, completely oblivious to any boundaries. So I can't see boundaries between art forms. And I think you sort of said, you know, at the beginning that, uh, you know, I'm something of a polymath, and which sort of has an impact on the question because when you come to a not-yet-it's-difficult event, and a probably event is not a bad thing or a happening, um, then you, you could meet it as a, a digital artwork. You could meet it as a piece of interactive media. You could meet it as a live performance. It could sit in theatre, it could sit in dance, it could be a, an assembly in which there's a big participatory gathering of a number of people. All of those experiences are essentially unified by a, a dramaturgy that looks at um, and behaves in relation to society and culture through an artistic practice. So the connection really is essentially how do we make work as artists and then how does that work that we make, how does that um, interpolate and interleave in cultural and social sectors? And so one of the things I think that you'll get across all of the forms is uh, a rigour, so a, a, a sense of, um, you know, of seriousness that um, allows people to feel comfortable in the space that they're um, um, witnessing, participating in, integrated into, in terms of, you know, an, let's say an audience. I sometimes use the word publics to describe the people that come along. Um, 
and that in that space that there's also uh, what I would call um, a degree of humour. And you know, I think humour is really important. In, in Australia, uh, no one takes you seriously unless you're funny. Uh, and so I think humour is one of those things that's really important. But I use this um, beautiful um, description by um, a Chilean, a Chilean poet, um, Oh, his name's escaped me, Octavio. Um, I'm going to come back, circle back on that. But he says that uh, humour is that which renders everything it touches ambiguous. <laughs> Lovely. And so that's very much kind of those two kind of poles around rigour and humour are really things that you will kind of, what you'll meet when you come into uh, a not-yet-it's-difficult um, em- embrace. Yep. So just two things on that. Um, could you maybe give us a specific example of a show just to, just to describe maybe some of that in a little more detail? But also could you, I think maybe we might need to explain what dramaturgy is uh, yeah, okay. for those who might not be aware of it. And obviously in the industry, people have different interpretations of what it is as well. So maybe a couple of examples. Sure. Um so how I talk about dramaturgy and I talk about it as an operating system. So I talk about it as the operating system of an artwork. Uh, so all the things that go into an artwork, so if you're thinking about live performance, the elements, the dramaturgical elements that you will be, uh, that will be in your operating system um, are things like uh, the, the, the text, the um, technical, so the lighting, uh, the movement, the choreography, um, the characterization. Uh, the room that you're operating in, if it's not a dedicated theatre space, and even if it is, what does that mean architecturally? So you're essentially um, moving between the... Um, uh, you, you're basically conducting a score of those elements that allows you to create the production or the artwork that you're working in. And I usually take that approach into how uh, a culture, the idea of cultural dramaturgy and the dramaturgy of society. And so in that way, it's really kind of how things operate, you know, in, in the way in, it's a process essentially is what, so really when you come into our space, you come into a space of a process. So even if it's, um, let me talk about it in terms of uh, theatre because that's a, a background we both share. Um, if I was to say, um, let's say the one a project that I did uh, let, let's talk about it in sort of site-specific installation in which theatre is is quite um, uh, is is got a strong element. So, uh, about five, six, seven years ago, I did a project called um, Hoteling up on the Gold Coast at uh, QT Hotel, and essentially we occupied that space for about forty-eight hours, and you would go into all the rooms in uh, various rooms in the outdoor spaces as well. Um, so that you kind of were immersed in the sort of the uh, the energy of um, a series of performative and digital artworks uh, that allowed you to experience the world through the prism of what is essentially a private space operating on operating on the edge of public space, and that porousness became central to the experience of people that were going in there. In some places, people call that immersive theatre, but it's probably a too narrow term for the, what that project was because essentially it occupied a building um, and for, you know, quite political and ethical reasons. So that would be in that kind of the performance sort of environment. In the, um, let's let's talk about it more, that kind of dramaturgy of the social. So we do this 
I have a futuring practice called The Things We Did Next, uh, and I do that with um, Alex Kelly and Sophia Marinos. Uh, one of our main projects is called Assembly for the Future. And in that, basically what we do is we set up a kind of temporary ecology, a sort of temporary society for about two or three hours. Uh, we have a first speaker, and the first speaker makes a provocation from the future. In our case, it's always 2029, so we're dealing in near future. Then we have two respondents to respond to that future, and then it goes out to the assembly, and there are an artist moderator at each of the table, and they work with the, a group there to kind of if, imagine a 2029. And so that structure is all flat. So it's very non-hierarchical. It's very distributive. And essentially the protagonists are not the speakers. They are the, the publics that are at each of the tables. They're the ones that are generating the narratives that are then responded to by the artists who commission who are commissioned to do an artwork within a week of the assembly. So in both of those kinds of um, spaces, there's a the, the, the dramaturgy that operates across a site-specific installation and a kind of participatory gathering is bound up by a kind of rigour as to questions, what are we doing? How are we trying to do it? And when are we trying to do it? And where are we trying to do it? So those all those kind of questions about place, about time and about space are always in a kind of mercurial relationship, whether or not you're doing something that sits within a public gathering uh, that generates work collectively or uh, more kind of, I wouldn't say conventional performance, but a site-specific performance. Yeah, fantastic. It, it reminds me when you're speaking, some of the uh, your explanation reminds me um, a little bit of David Finnegan, who I spoke to late last year, who refers to dramaturgy as uh, systems thinking, um, that, that same sense of, of being in a, a systems thinking process um, sort of context, but also of um, the British company Forced Entertainment who often refer to their audiences as witnesses, that they're witnessing something and witness also uh, implies that you're a participant or you're, you're contributing in some way, that you're culpable in some way. Um, and because your work incorporates all these different elements and it's interdisciplinary and you are asking those questions, not just about the the micro context, the, the theatrical, dramatic, performative context, but you're also looking at it in a bigger social, cultural, economic context. So in terms of raising that conversation about art, science, climate, culture, what do you think is the role of art um, and the creative sector in confronting the kinds of challenges that we're all facing now, whether it's climate adaptation, mental health, social inequality? Look, I think what... Um, so I would always sort of try and avoid the idea of, and I know you're not suggesting this, but I, I just want to say it up front, Mm -hmm. There's often a tendency to think about what if what can art do for. Often, in a kind of policy terms, it comes down to like what's what's its instrument. It's a tool for blah blah, blah like that. And so, I'm very averse to um, kind of going down that path because it's it's irresistible to policymakers and politicians because it then you go into a world of metrics rather than actually understanding the meaning of art and its and its and its meaning for society. So, I mean, I would I think. Art has this underlying everything, and really it is very much this is a, a sort of an answer for, for now, 
is the practice of an imagination, the practice of our, our imagination, both individually and collectively. And so why is that important? Well, it's largely important because the sort of ideological framework that we have that sort of taken over, um, you know, the, the West particularly over the last, probably since the fall of the, um, uh, fall of the wall in 1990, has essentially um, uh, uh, taken the shape of what's called neoliberal capitalism. And what's essential to neoliberal capitalism is the reduction of everything to a financial unit at the expense of all other things. And one of the casualties in that space and in the space of uh, society has been the imagination because the imagination is a very dangerous thing. It gets in the way of profit making. So you have to be very careful and you have to channel it in a certain way in order for it only to be about profit. So when you start stretching the whole idea of imagination, asking questions like, yes, but how, how can the world be a better place, not for just the few, the you know, so-called elite, um, I'm you know, doing my quotation marks there, for the elite, um, how, what about for the many? So what are the, when we start asking questions about, when we start to apply the imagination to solving the problems of the day, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about the pandemic, whether it's about artificial intelligence, or, you know, really the first sort of existential crisis, which was nuclear, if we apply our imagination to those in a way that is very, um, you know, very horizontal in its spread rather than myopic, which is essentially what uh, finance does for us, if that's the prism we're looking at, what we then start to do is we start to contend with the overall ideology we ask questions of it, we question it, we challenge it, and we put it... And, and so that has been one of the, that's the... I think that is probably across all art forms. What art can actually do is it can practice the imagination to the point where we are always contending the status quo, whether that's to do with colonialism or the patriarchy or capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah, absolutely, I agree with you that uh, tendency to... Uh, lean into the instrumental value of arts or I would say has bled into a whole range of other sectors as well. Um, higher education, I think, suffers from it as well. And then there's this <laughs> dreadful sort of binary between the instrumental value of something versus, you know, art for art's sake or education for education's sake. And there seems to be this constant conflict between these two binaries and yeah, you, you, we're not really progressing, I think, sometimes about that. And it, I find it really interesting the way that you describe imagination as being dangerous. I think that's that's very accurate. I think it also appears in the sense that people are often afraid of their imagination. They're afraid to play. They're afraid to ask questions. Um, so I'm wondering what other sectors like higher education, like the corporate sector, the public sector, industry even, what can they learn from the art sector, not just for climate leadership, but for progress across a range of sustainability areas, whether that's social progress or climate leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think the arts, the experience of the arts similar to is quite similar to education in a way that um, neoliberalism hit the arts and education, particularly higher education, late. And so it was quite profound mm. and it was seismic and the effect that it had really, you know, you can make a good argument to say that the university has become a manufacturing and retail outlet for the education product. 
So pedagogy, research, those things that are core to our whole concept of university are really devalued. Similarly, in the arts, you can look at, you know, uh, the commodification of the whole idea of creativity. You know, we are every, no one's an artist anymore. People are, are creatives. And that really is a kind of speaks to the sort of the, uh, so the overwhelm of creative industries in the vernacular of, of cultural policy. So, so what I think other sectors can learn from the arts is it can be like um, it can be a, a litmus test. You can look at the arts and you can see how neoliberal capitalism has actually affected um, the progress of the arts over the last ten to fifteen years, and it's had a deleterious effect on the progress of the art over the last 10 to 15 years. And so it can be like a warning bell because of how it's really kind of, you know, gutted the sector. I think there's anecdotally, I think, you know, through COVID, but this was happening before, there's 25% less artists in the artist population of the country. Um, And over the last seven years in the small to medium sector, uh, the companies have gone from 150 to about 80, something, 85, 90. So that's 40% of that kind of, you know, the, the sort of the where, where all the research and the kind of the, the imagination actually occurs because it's not institutionally bound is really had a massive problematic effect on the progress of the arts. What it, what it can do, so that's what I would call it, you know, sort of a, a global um, answer to the question. Um, what, what is, what the arts is, is able to do, and I don't know how long it'll last, but it's very resilient. Mm. And one of the things about the arts is that is actually, and it's why neoliberalism didn't quite, hasn't quite, hasn't quite, you know, um, smashed it out of society. It's because it's actually not concrete. The arts is much more like a gas. It's, you know, it continually, you know, reshapes and reforms and, you know, makes itself into, you know, it it sort of harnesses other kind of properties that are indiscriminate and chaotic and, you know, radical and transgressive. And it's just the way it behaves. So it's very, very hard in some way to kind of actually stamp it out. So in that way, the irrational, if you like, you know, if we can Mm -hmm. can go down that, you know, rational, irrational, just for the sake of a shortcut, if you like the the chaotic, the unpredictable, um, the irrational, the the risk, uh, you know, embrace, that's really what other sectors can take from the arts because largely that's what, that are some of our kind of core properties as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating too, I think, that I agree the arts and all the artists I know are highly resilient, highly flexible, highly adaptable, um, and that COVID has forced a lot of other sectors and industries and areas that might not have been like that, that might have been a bit more rigid, to become more flexible, uh, adaptable. But I also wonder uh, how long the arts sector can continue to be as flexible and in many ways even more flexible and resilient than they ever have been because of COVID. You know, a a lot of people in the art sector are burnt out um, from being uh, as flexible and adaptable from taking the position that they always have but pushing it even further uh, and how long that can last and what lessons maybe other 
workplaces might learn from that? Like how flexible can you be? How resilient can you be until you reach breaking point, I guess? Look, Safran, I think that is probably the most important question of the day for, for the arts. Uh, and it's particularly in the case of, you know, the, the independent artists because they are, at the, they are the most financially precarious. They are at the end of the food chain. So everything, if whatever consequences there are of the sort of, you know, the um, of, of, of AI, of climate change, of, of the pandemic, they will always bear the brunt of them because they are basically on the edge. So it is a really, it's a very hard question. And I think most people ask that question every single day. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, you know, I'll check in with that at the end of the year and see how I go, largely because it's so precarious, not just financially, but also, you know, there's a sort of an, there's an ethical precarity out there in which the sector itself behaves very poorly towards artists. And so there's a sense that artists are, I think it's not a sense, I would say that there's evidence to say that artists are essentially discriminated against in terms of the, you know, the, the way in which artistic and cultural production behaves in this country. Uh, and I think there is, it's really a great danger of, um, you know, there being no more oxygen for artists and that they will, as they've, as they've done, you know, through, through the pandemic, they will just leave and they will do other things that are less stressful, um, that provide them with a level of certainty. And there are other, I mean, the arts, as an independent artist, the arts provides you with almost no certainty whatsoever. And there was, there was all, you know, all these statistics around, you know, um, you know, percentage rates of success for grant applications, you know, everything up from 4 to 12%, you know, in national and local programs. I mean, it's unsustainable. What I think is interesting is that um, the whole notion of sustainability, when we talk about it in the climate change space, I think we really need to view it in terms of sustainability, in terms of the art space, in terms of the education sector, because we're all, you know, if you want to kind of go down that path and use that language, uh, you know, of the sort of through the prism of the resource, you cannot exhaust the resources until that. So, so in a way, we are at the last part of the end game of neoliberal capitalism, which is the last version of capitalism that was sort of put in place from a Western civilizational imperative. In some ways, I get excited by the fact that this is the place we're in because it means that we really have to, you know, we have an opportunity to solve some incredible problems because we're right up against them, you know, we're right there. So that's exciting, but it's also very exhausting. And I know definitely in the climate change space and the space of artists' rights and also just in the space of, you know, making one's work, people are often tired before they get on the floor. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And, uh, you know, the arts, it is interesting the way that the arts are this microcosm or this almost direct parallel to what's happening the people who are most marginalised, the people who can least afford to, you know, be at the bottom of the food chain are the ones who are suffering the most and, and bearing the brunt of it the most. And I often feel like we're at some kind of tipping point or cliff edge of uh, neoliberalism, as you say, and, and the impacts of that. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting um, segue, I think, into my next question, which is, the you know the commodification of the arts and the the reliance so much for artists on on funding uh, and 
the what how you um, balance that, I guess, with your integrity and your ideals and your beliefs and your practice even. So you recently withdrew your application for a creative climate leadership grant from the National Arts Funding Body, the Australia Council. I guess because you felt it was hypocritical or not right to accept support for a climate leadership program when the Australia Council itself aren't perhaps the best climate leaders. What does the art sector have to learn about climate leadership? Where are the gaps in climate leadership in the arts? Um, I think there's um, I think there's probably some basic activism uh, strategies. Um, actually, maybe I'll just move back a little bit from that what the arts isn't good at is strategy it's okay on tactics so yeah. we, we can do we can't do strategy but we can do tactics and it's one of the real uh problems you know all the way through the uh brandis um uh pro problem i mean we did organize and we did kind of uh you know we got rid of brandis and all that sort of stuff and some of the money came back and uh but it was it was very difficult in some of those um spaces for people to understand the difference between a strategy and a tactic. A strategy is sort of like, you know, if you're if you're in this if you're an actor, it's the super objective. And so when, you know, as an and then you go through all of the steps along the way to kind of your they're your tactics as you build character along the way in order to achieve your super objective. And I think the arts is really um needs to learn a lot about um, strategy in that way. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why I started to talk about dramaturgy in cultural, uh, in a, through a cultural prism and through a sort of the, 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 the social prism as well. Because I think if we can see that what we're doing on the floor when we make a work in the theatre, actually that those processes are processes that have great value when we're walking out of the theatre, when we deal with the things, the politics of our of the culture that we're operating in the politics of society, then we actually um, stop triple handling. Yeah. We just do it once and we go, oh, okay. So I, this is how I behave as an artist. Oh, okay, so, well, I'm a person, so I probably behave a bit like that. There's probably some of my reflexes that I usually have in my daily life. Oh, okay, so let me analyse that a little bit more and go, okay, so if I want to achieve this, then how do I do that in my daily life outside of you know, the rehearsal room or outside of my profession. And by building those kinds of, um, you know, by mapping that sort of geography of human reflexes for ourselves and then collectively, we then start to basically have a, a social and cultural agency every time we make work rather than for that to be valued only in and of itself. And that's the big thing that I think we need to learn when we have to look at things like climate change or artificial intelligence that we actually have to understand that the things that we do when we're making our own work and creating our own work actually has great value if we apply them to things outside of the studio or the rehearsal room and to kind of really understand that we, we really don't need to do that much more. All we have to do is analyse it in a different way and apply it collectively so that change can happen in a way that is progressive and just in a way that suits the many rather than the few so obviously it's not a it's not a formula but it is a way of it's a way of thinking it's more of a kind of more of a philosophy if you like a philosophy and a strategy yeah, yeah. um yeah i find it really fascinating that that lack of strategy or that lack of strategic thinking i think occurs in a number of other contexts and areas and sectors as well and 
I, I think it might, from my perspective, it often comes down to two things. One is a lack of skills or an understanding of what strategy is and what, what it requires, but also uh, a lack of time. You know, we don't give ourselves enough time to develop the strategy. Uh, we, we just rely on tactics because tactics are quick and easy and you can, they're a response rather than, or a reaction rather than a response. So, you know, spending more time on strategizing would actually, in the long term, benefit you, but then you don't have time. And of course, if you're an artist, you don't have, you, you just have to keep going to gig to gig to gig to make money. You can't stop. And that's true in other areas as well. People don't have time to stop their work to step back and strategize, you know, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's, what's the big long-term picture? Time's really key in that. And I, I think it's actually our relationship to time, not just time itself. So mm. how do we view time? If we, if we, if we, if we thought, um, okay, the more experience I get, the less time I actually need to achieve what I used to achieve when I was less experienced. So I don't need to expend the same amount of time because actually I can do that a lot quicker and faster and better because I have that experience. If we are on the, um, if we are in the kind of the 24-7, you know, the Jonathan Crary 24-7 model where we're just working, 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 then the que- then we cannot, we, we don't even have time to question the whole notion and concept of time. All we're looking at is productivity and efficiency. And so unless we sort of turn those ideas, um, I mean, productivity essentially in the way that it was was originally conceived was how do you achieve uh, the same with less time? That's actually what productivity is supposed to be about. It got flipped to uh, let's make people work 24 hours a day. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've... It's fascinating too about, I agree with you, we do have to change our own personal sense of time definitely and our our sense of what productivity means. Uh, But I often feel a sense of panic about time because we are in such an urgent situation. Time is literally running out on us in terms of climate action. So what behaviours and mindsets do we need to change if our climate leaders, if our organisations, if our workplaces are acting too slow uh, to take climate leadership, to adapt to climate change, how can we change what we do? How can we influence change in climate leadership or climate adaptation? Um, I think I'd go back again to um, the practice of imagination and how that gets built into the way in which we deal with the world and our work and everything. And we make that a kind of, you know, a platform that is a, a given rather than something that we have to argue for. I, I also think that um, we are in a, we're sort of in a position where artists generally don't uh, face things uh, head on. Like they don't, they don't always stay in the same position all of the time. We, you know, we, we, we live a life in which we're operating in a series of master shots. We're always turning the camera from, the, you know, from this setup to that setup to this setup. And so we have a kind of, um, a, you know, a, 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 we, we tend to, and this is a generalisation, but I think we tend to kind of have a, a, um, a, a practice that requires us to always be changing our perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a good thing because most of the time we're being told that there is only one perspective. 
there is only one future. And so if we are thinking that um, actually there, if we, if we say, if we resist the idea that there's only one future and it's all, you know, going to uh, turn to chaos, and we say, well, what's the evidence of that? And then you, you look back and you go, uh, it, that, might, that future might be possible. Okay, it might be possible, but it's not inevitable. And so if we accept then that the future that is, we're being told is inevitable is not inevitable and we're being told that because it's built around fear and fear, you know, creates profit, then what we start to see is that there are things out there that have values that are not the ones that we thought they had. Uh, and so we recalibrate the world according to um, what, we, what we see rather than what we're told to see. And that's where I think... Um, the whole practice of futuring is really brilliant because what it asks you to do, especially, especially working in a near future space, because what it asks you to do, it asks you to put yourself six or seven years ahead and maps out how do I, and, and says this is what that future looks like and this is how we got there. And I've seen this happen so much in quite a few of my projects where people's shoulders just drop. They go, oh, oh, you mean... Oh, you mean it, it could actually change like that? And then, you know, the last six or seven years, I think, you know, before the pandemic to now, there's a lot of change that's gone on. So, yeah, things can change and they don't always have to be for the worse. If we have some agency in it, we can always change the way in which we, we respond to things. And by changing the way that we respond to things, we can actually affect change as it happens going forward, but also around us. And so that the whole idea of us sitting in a, in a world that is, you know, um, circular as opposed to, you know, linear is a very, very powerful place to be able to be as an individual and it allows you to kind of take ownership of the things that you have in your control and to work with other people so that you can actually build a critical mass that creates a different kind of future than the one that we've been told is inevitable. I'm going to try and stop panicking then. You've, you've calmed me down. I'll yeah, try and definitely, definitely. Change, change my perspective a little yeah. bit. Um, yeah, I think, I think conceiving of time in a different way and, and the inevitability of linear time is, is really uh, fascinating, and especially that futurist work and the idea of regenerative futures, I think, it's, is really fascinating for where we could be as opposed to where we really should be. Um, we're, we're running very short on times, but uh, just quickly, what do you hope the future looks like and what do you fear it will look like? Well, I hope the future looks like a world in which care becomes our first reflex so that care for country, care for each other, um, care for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged, care for the well-off and the privileged, um, care for uh, those that aren't just family in our friendship networks so that we actually consider um, our actions through the prism of care. I think that's one thing. If, if that's possible, if we can do that, then, you know, I think um, uh, climate justice, um, you know, um, uh, you know, um, a kind of, um, uh, you know, all, all, the, all the processes of decolonization can go in a way that uh, it is not about conflict, but it's about um, acceptance and resolution and 
and tolerance, that there's truth-telling in there, um, and that the, the world is messy. You know, I hope for a world that's messy in a way that already is, but in a way that people feel comfortable with that, that they understand that the not knowing and the, and the, and the, the feelings of unease are part of what it is to being human. It's not a disease. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a health problem. It's just how we are. That's just the world that we're in. You know, that is what feels like to be alive. And sometimes it feels better and sometimes it, it doesn't feel so good. But that's what it is. That's how we are as human beings. And we can only do our best in those situations. What do I fear? Well, look, um, I will, about um, how long ago is it now? Maybe 2017. In one of my projects, I, uh, one of my assembly projects, I interviewed um, Julian Assange. Uh, and he was in the um, he was still in the in the embassy in London, and uh, it was sort of an hour and a half uh, interview, public interview. Um, so it was just um, it was about 150 people in the room, and um, the the objective for each of the speakers in that in that sort of arts festival called 2970 was to propose something to the assembly that they could then vote on, and and Julian propose that the computational capacity of nation states and I think corporations should be held at 2017 levels because he could see what would happen if Mm -hmm. that wasn't the case. And so here we are six years down the track from that and I can see a spooling out of... um, uh, research and practice and profit making that takes us to a place in which what I hope for is not possible. And so rather than finishing on a binary, I think they are two two kinds of futures, but I think there are multiple ones in between and around them. And that I would hope that the one that we go towards is the one that I hope for rather than the one that I fear. Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to try and not panic and I, I do frequently try to accept the chaos. It makes life a lot easier, I think, but I will try to stop panicking quite as much. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I have a thousand other questions, but unfortunately we're out of time and I appreciate you are a very time poor person. So thank you once again. It's been fascinating. Oh, my pleasure, Saffron. It was a real pleasure. Cheers. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.